This is Hebrews 2020 on Mother's Day. Thank you, Emery, for reminding me that May 8th is Mother's Day, and it's very interesting because I had some things to say that involved my mom and my sister's mom, and we'll begin that shortly as we weave it into the message. Part four, the kind of archpriest we need. The kind of archpriest we need from Hebrews 7.26. And Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit as the one you've called upon to teach your word today. And I also entrust the spirits of all those who hear this message today that we may all hear it and have it result in our turning our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face. And we ask this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> when I was just a little boy, no, wait a minute, that's Credence, clear, clear, clear water <laughs> revival. We're in a different kind of revival now. When I was a young man, my mom, speaking of Mother's Day, and sisters and I, attended St. John the Baptist Church. It's kind of strange. St. John the Baptist was a Catholic church in North Bennington, Vermont. Our dad never darkened the door of the church unless he had to attend a funeral service there or much more rarely a wedding. The first priest I remember was, and I remember him fondly, was Father Dignan. He was a bald-headed, apple-shaped man who was a boxer in his younger days. He was what was referred to then, and I still refer to it now, as a man's man. And he held his own with the men of our town, including my dad who worked in the post office. Sometimes people would gather in the post office to have their conversations and their back-and-forth banter and my dad was among them. I remember Father Dignan lecturing the ladies one time of his parish in one of his sermons. He was kind of a character. I remember one time he was dancing around with his fingers in the air, like, and he was imitating Elvis Presley singing, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, but I can't, I can't remember what it was in illustration of, but it was quite the comic relief. But in this sermon, I remember him very much lecturing gently the ladies of the parish and he was telling them never to nag their husbands who were non-Catholics or who didn't want to go to church. I always wondered if there was something in there about him talking to my dad at the post office and knowing that my dad wasn't coming. I don't know. In any case, he did that in a winsome and humorous manner, but he got the point across. And so I guess you could say that Father Dignan was just the kind of priest my mom needed. But you could even say even more so, he was just the kind of priest that my dad needed. And my dad didn't even go to his church. Now that's saying something because Jesus Christ is a great archpriest, not only those over those who so-called are called the church or the elect, but those who are not churchgoers or not even classified as Christians. My dad was a believer. He had a very strong personal faith. He just wasn't into going to church or mass. I also remember after Father Dignan was Father Miller, we were a little older then, I think I was probably 14 or 15, and he was a sort of a sophisticated man. He smoked big cigars, and he drove to what in North Bennington, Vermont, was very impressive, an Oldsmobile Toronado. And it was a gift from his sister. I remember it very clearly. Evidently, Father Miller came from a fairly well-to-do family, and he had a generous sister who often visited and attended his masses, etc. With both of these priests, I served with some of my boyhood friends as an altar boy. And Father Miller 
And I remember this very fondly also, and I remember it also with some cravings still in my soul. Father Miller used to take us to a gourmet French restaurant. Believe it or not, there was one right in North Bennington, a city of a thousand people. A French restaurant called the Rain Barrel once a year. He took all of us altar boys there. And we were treated to a spectacular seven-course meal prepared by Chef Alain Midier, Alan Midier. It included vichyssoise, escargot, chicken almondine, and some delectable dessert, which I can't even describe, but it was wonderful. Father Miller then, at least once a year, was just the kind of priest me and the boys needed. And so in more recent years, speaking of my mom, toward the end of her life, my mom attended St. Joseph's Parish in Bradenton, Florida. One of the priests, and I used to go to the masses with her, and there were some excellent sermons produced by a variety of priests. There was a lot of priests that served there. One of the priests was from Poland. He was an excellent preacher. But he always started his sermons, he opened them with a joke. And my mom did not appreciate his jokes and was probably one of the few people in the church who didn't laugh because they were pretty good jokes. But she thought a sermon shouldn't begin with a joke. She had a wonderful sense of humor and was always laughing and singing and whistling and kidding us and just was always that way. But she didn't think a priest should open his sermon with a joke. There was also another priest, and I think this was her favorite. His name was Father Paul, whom Mom would call a regular guy, and we'd all call that. He's a regular guy. He was an excellent administrator. I met him on a couple of occasions. He was an excellent leader. He was personable, and his sermons were brief but very practical. And you might say Father Paul was just the kind of priest my mom needed. But Father Paul was transferred. And so was the Polish priest. And there was another priest from Ireland that mom liked, but he came and went. He was transferred. Even just the right kind of priest was not around for long. One or two also passed away. I gave this introduction today not just to honor my mom and all moms, but to introduce the next verse in our Hebrew study. Hebrews 7.26, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, says he's just the kind of priest we need. In fact, he's just the kind of archpriest we need. He's the son of God. He lives forever. He'll never be transferred. He was solemnly acclaimed to be a priest with an oath spoken by God the Father. He was made, he has made one offering for sins for all forever. And he passed through the heavens. He entered the heavenly holy of holies to consummate his sacrifice. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty above the heavens. Not just to sit, but to minister in his heavenly tent. Not pitched by man, but by God himself. He lives forever, and he is always interceding for us in order to save us completely. Yes, this is the kind of priest, the kind of archpriest we need. One who is holy, utterly without malice toward anyone, utterly without evil, undefiled, and different from all other priests in that he is not a sinner like them not prone to a lack of fidelity or compassion, not having a need 
to offer sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. But our priest became sin for us all, that we would all be made the righteousness of God in union with him, our single inclusive representative. For in that day, I in you, you in me, I in my Father, you in me, you in my Father. Perhaps most significant of all, Jesus is not only a priest, but the Lamb. Not only a priest, but an archpriest. And not just a priest, but the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world whose self-sacrifice has universal efficacy, who is merciful and faithful, who suffers with us in our suffering, in the suffering that we have brought on ourselves even, even the suffering we have brought on ourselves by our sinfulness, our sinful decisions and bad decisions. He suffers with us even as he suffered for us. Jesus is my priest. Jesus is my archpriest. He's just the kind of priest I need. Jesus is the archpriest over all humankind. Whether men and women acknowledge him or not, whether they go to church or not, whether they know him or not. He's just the kind of high priest, archpriest, that the whole world needs. Like Melchizedek of Genesis fame, he is priest of the Most High God. Unlike Melchizedek, however, Jesus is the Son of God. Unlike Melchizedek, who is made to resemble him, or prefigure him. Unlike Melchizedek, he's not only priest, but offering, not only archpriest, but the sacrifice of the one and only sacrifice, and the sacrificer of that sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that God deemed acceptable for all, and for the taking away of all sins for the forgiveness of all the sins of all people for all time. This is the kind of archpriest we need. Now Hebrews 7, 26 to 28 is the bridge to the exposition which illustrates this very point. Jesus is just the kind of priest we need as is the sacrifice that he offered once for all. The once and for all Sacrifice that we all needed. Now to be Hebrews specific, Sir, S-I-R, as we've noted, is a suitable acronym. It's a suitable description of Jesus as our great archpriest. The single inclusive representative of all mankind is also our great archpriest. <coughs> Now, according to the particular passage in Hebrews that we're looking at presently, he's just the kind of archpriest we need. And this is the kind of archpriest we need, part four. We're now ready to introduce another descriptor for Jesus, this time having specifically to do with his office and ministry as archpriest, and therefore specific to a theological exegesis of Hebrews. <coughs> That's what we're doing. A theological exegesis of Hebrews. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm speaking once again of this single inclusive representative, but this time single inclusive <coughs> antitype. Now you've been hearing Brian Messick if you've been listening to his messages as I hope you have been. You've heard him talk about the antitype, Christ is the antitype, and how that determines the types. 
and he's doing an excellent job at that. So single inclusive antitype, SIA, is a better is a term that we're going to now use or introduce for the first time into our Hebrew specific study. So he is, and I'll explain what I mean by single inclusive or antitype. Jesus is the kind of archpriest we need because he is both the eternal archpriest and the eternally efficacious sacrifice for our sins. The judge who was judged in our place is the archpriest who represents us and who is the sacrifice for us, pro nobis, for all of us, pro nobis, omnibus. So here we have in Hebrews 7.26a, the first part, we have this. This is the kind of archpriest we need, one who is holy. And you'll see the Greek words of some of these descriptive characteristics in the printed version of this message. In Deuteronomy 32.4, which I find to be a remarkable verse, Hoseos, as it's called here, Hoseos, the word for holy, not the usual word Hagios, but Hoseos is used here. Uh, H-O-S, it's a hard breathing, I-O-S, Hoseos. And Dikaios are used to describe Yahweh, the rock, in Deuteronomy 32.4. You can also see that in Psalm 92.15 or Septuagint 91.16. The rock, whose works are genuine and all of whose ways are justice, who is faithful, the word pistos is used here for Yahweh, the God of Israel, pistos, hosios and pistos. He's also dikaios or righteous, and that means performative of saving acts. I just defined that just now. So in Deuteronomy 32.4, Hosios, which is also descriptive of our great archpriest in 726 of Hebrews, whose works are genuine, whose ways are just, justice, is also a faithful God. And this can be compared to Jesus as our faithful archpriest in Hebrews 2.17. There, there he's called faithful and he's called merciful or compassionate, meaning he suffers with us as well as having suffered for us on the cross. And so he's a very present help in time of trouble, in time of need. So he is called faithful, and this relates to Hebrews 2.17, in which Jesus is called our faithful high priest. And in whom there is no unrighteousness, says this passage. Christ is also called the rock in 1 Corinthians 10.4, as Yahweh is called the rock in Deuteronomy 32.4. And why not? Christ Jesus is Yahweh, the rock. As such, he is Hosios, H-O-S-I-O-S. As God himself is holy, so Jesus is holy. This is completely in contrast with the so-called blemished children who are, quote, not his, a crooked and perverse generation in Deuteronomy 32.5, which is also found in Philippians 2.15, a crooked and perverse generation. And that's a people whose situation has changed but whose condition has not changed. Therefore, Yahweh and Jesus as Yahweh, Jesus hyphen as hyphen Yahweh, Yahweh Yeshua, is holy. And as such, his ministry as archpriest is genuine, equitable, universally just, universally, savingly just. As the man Christ Jesus is holy, so God is holy. As God in the flesh, Jesus is holy. 
the kind of archpriest we need. As God and man, Jesus is holy. As priest and lamb, Jesus is holy. As God and man, as priest and lamb. As judge and judged. He is God and man. He is the judge and the judge, the archpriest as the offer and the lamb offered. He's just the kind of archpriest we need, and he's the kind of archpriest the world needs and the world has. The next phrase says, and without evil. So holiness, or holy, Hoseos states positively, but the next word, akakos, A-K-A-K-A-K-O-S, akakos, means without evil. The a is a privative alpha. It takes away everything from the next word, kakos. Absolutely no evil, absolutely no uselessness, no evil, no malice really is what is intended here. There is absolutely no malice in our great archpriest. It's the kind of priest we need, no malice. Imagine having a priest who has malice toward his congregation or toward those he represents. Imagine having the kind of God who is vengeful and malicious toward people and wants to throw them in a fire forever. Imagine that. Thank God we don't have that God. Thank God we don't have that kind of archpriest. Holy states positively and akakos, or akakos, meaning without evil or malice, states negatively the characteristics of our archpriest, the kind of archpriest we need. That this archpriest is without evil means utterly without, totally without any vestige of evil, entirely without malice. So when you see him tearing up one side and down the other, the Pharisees, he's doing it without malice, without evil intent, without intending their destruction but their salvation instead in John 5.34. He is utterly without the motives of vengeance or retribution towards sinners. So this states negatively what Hebrews 2.17 states positively, that Jesus is a merciful high priest, compassionate. whose intention towards sinners is salvific, saving. Again, John 5.34 comes to mind. He who was crucified between and with two thieves and who was with the rich man in his death prayed for his crucifiers. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Those who believe that God permits an endless hell, or even worse, assigns people to it and throws them into the lake of fire to be tormented. Those who believe that God permits an endless hell of torment for unrepentant sinners, or that he sends them to such a place, are attributing malice to God and thus to his Son. It's hard for us to imagine someone who is entirely and always without any malice ever, without ressentiment, without desire for vengeance or revenge. But that's Jesus. That's our great archpriest. That's just the kind of archpriest we, as sinners, need and the world also needs. Some translate this word akakos as innocent. 
It's true that Jesus was innocent. He was innocent of any evil and any malfeasance, of any sin at all. Hebrews 7.26 also with Hebrews 4.15 makes that very clear. He was innocent of the charges that they leveled against him. But innocent doesn't really cover the meaning here because of its connotation of naivete. When we think of innocence, we usually think of naive. We think of naivete. When we think of innocent, we think of someone who's naive. Jesus wasn't naive. Better than you, better than me, and better than any person, including any criminal, Jesus knew the meaning of evil, even though he did not participate in it. He was not naive. In fact, he knew it was in a sinful man. He knew what was in sinful man. He knew what made his enemies tick. His freedom from all evil was his own character, but it did not entail any blissful ignorance of evil in others, and in the evil one. Perhaps the most insignificant, or make that the most significant thing, the most significant thing about this word, akakos, is that it was used to describe a lamb in Jeremiah 11.19 in the Septuagint. Now let that marinate for a moment in your mind. That word akakos is used to describe a lamb in the Septuagint or the Greek version of Jeremiah 11.19. This is more significant than first meets the eye because uh, in the Hebrews specific, Hebrews hyphen specific context, our archpriest is also a lamb. In fact, Jesus is the kind of archpriest we all need because our archpriest is also the Lamb of God who took away our sins. The offerer, priest, is also the offering, the Lamb. The judge who was judged in our place, in the place of us all, is also the priest who was offered for us all as a Lamb and who now represents us all as the one who was judged and the one who was once and for all offered for us as the efficacious sacrifice for our sins. As our great archpriest, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as he's called in 1 John 2, 1, is the propitiation for our sins. Not just on the cross, but always. That's also true on the level of our time as true as it was when he became sin on the moment of him becoming sin. He is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Put that in bold print in your brain, for the sins of the whole world. He is our advocate if and when we sin. <clears throat> First John 2, 1. If and when we sin. If anyone sins, let him know he has an advocate. It doesn't say if someone never sins, he has an advocate. Or if someone isn't sinning, he has an advocate. It says if anyone sins, he has an advocate. She has an advocate. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is now and forever and always the propitiation for our sins and our great archpriest and for the sins of the whole world. He's our advocate if and when we sin. As our great archpriest, the man Christ Jesus, is the only mediator between the one God and all of humanity. He gave himself as a ransom for all, and as our archpriest, Archierius, he represents the all for whom he gave himself as a ransom. <clears throat> the all whose sins are wiped away by his death. The all whom God justified by his one righteous and holy act of obedience and by his passion 
in which he received our judgment as sinful people and became sin and became, as it were, the man of sin <clears throat> in order that the man of sin would be utterly demolished in his appearing. The closest symbol of a taking away of the sin of the world, think of that, takes away the sin of the world. The closest symbol that we have or depiction, symbolic depiction of the taking away of the sin of the world is in the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, annually. A young he-goat was to symbolically bear <clears throat> or carry the transgressions of all of Israel to an isolated desert place, according to Leviticus 16.22. You can read Leviticus 16 for a more detailed description of Yom Kippur. To hear that Jesus, the Lamb, took away the sins of the world had to sound strange in the ears of the Jews at the time. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shouldn't you say, look, there's the scapegoat of God who takes away the sin of the world? Wasn't it a goat that took the sins of the world out into the, took it away into the wilderness? What it seems strange. The Lamb, not the goat of God. Jesus is never called the goat of God. The bull of God. The dove of God. He is called the bread of life, which relates him to the grain offering, but he's called the lamb of God, not the goat of God. The lamb of God takes away, or took away, we'd say, the sin of the world. It seems strange to say that. To those familiar with the annual ritual of the Day of Atonement, this would sound pretty weird. But it's not so weird or discordant to our ears if we consider that Jesus, as God's lamb, is the single inclusive antitype, and we could even say archetype, of all the types of animals used in the sacrifices made by the priests and the archpriests of the order of Aaron. In other words, God doesn't call Jesus the goat slash lamb slash bull slash red heifer slash this, 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 and this. He simply calls him the lamb of God. And that term comprehends all the other symbols and all the other types that were used in sacrifice for various, to describe various benefits that were wrought in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, in this connection, I, I decided to approach it this way. We'll take a look at question 22, article 3, objection 3, in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. I've referred to that a few times in our study, and <clears throat> it's proven fruitful every time, I think. Where the objector says this, this again is question 22, article 3, objection 3, in Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. He records the objector. The objection says, or the objector says this, in the sin offerings of the old law, a he-goat was mostly offered for the sin of a prince, a she-goat for the sin of some private individuals, a calf for the sin of a priest. As we gather from Leviticus 4, Verses 3, 23, and 28. The objector goes on to say, but Christ is compared to none of these. Not a he-goat, not a she-goat, not a calf. But to the lamb. And then what he says is interesting. According to Jeremiah eleven nineteen. I was a meek lamb that is carried to be a victim. Therefore, says the objector, it seems that his priesthood does not expiate sins. Quite an objection. But in reply to objection three, Thomas Aquinas wrote this, and I'm going to give seven observations. I'm going to post seven observations about his reply to this objection. Thomas wrote this, quote, 
As Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, says in his commentary on John, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, Origen on his commentary on John 129, though various animals were offered up under the old law, yet the daily sacrifice which was offered up morning and evening was a lamb, as appears from Numbers 38, verses 3, and four, by which it was signified that the offering of the one of the true lamb, at i.e. Christ, was the culminating sacrifice of all. Hence, John one twenty nine, it is said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins and in the Latin Vulgate, sin singular, of the world. Now, on this I'm going to post and speak of, and then post in print, seven observations about this little uh, uh, objection and reply. One, it is interesting that Aquinas cites Origen, who is, as we've recently discovered, one of the leading patristic exponents of the apocatastasis panton, the restoration of all things. Second, <clears throat> it is worthy of note that Aquinas cites Jeremiah 11.19, referring to the lamb, because in the Greek text of that verse, the same adjective, akakos, is used of the lamb that is used of Jesus, the archpriest, in Hebrews 7.26, go and learn what this means. The priest, who is Akakos, is also the lamb. So we're dealing here with, as we deal with the judge who was judged, we're dealing with the priest who is the lamb offered, both of whom are called Akakos. That's a great linking characteristic. Third, note that Jesus is never called the goat of God, the calf of God, the bull of God, but always the Lamb of God. And this is because Christ as Lamb is the culminating sacrifice of all. And therefore that term, the Lamb of God, comprehends in itself all the references to the other offerings, whether of calves, goats, he goats, she goats, red heifers, doves, etc. So as the culminating sacrifice of all, still under point three, Jesus is also the representative archpriest for all. So as the Lamb of God, he is the single inclusive antitype for all of the types of animal sacrifices offered by prescriptions of God through Moses according to the law. I'll say that again because this is new territory. Jesus is also the representative archpriest for all. As the Lamb of God, he is the single inclusive antitype for all of the types of animal sacrifices offered by prescription of God through Moses according to the law. Four, just as Jesus is the judge of all and the judged for all, so he is the archpriest who offers and the lamb offered. He appeared once at the crux of the ages. I'm going to explain why I translate it that way in Hebrews 9.26 as we approach that verse in our study. But he appeared once at the crux of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The priest is the lamb. The lamb is the priest. The priest and the lamb are one, just as the judge and the judged are one. And he is our single inclusive representative. Fifth point. John one twenty nine is the prominent verse appealed to by both the objector, the objector and the reply in Article 3 of Question 22 of Summa Theologica. And rightly so is John 129 appealed to because that verse is prominent in describing the universal impact of the self-sacrifice of Christ to the taking away of the sin of the world. Because Jesus is the single inclusive archetype and antitype, 
then the lamb taking away the sin of the world comprehends the meaning of the goat, the scapegoat, as well as the meaning of all other sacrifices that were offered under the Levitical order and the prescription of Moses from God through Moses in the law. So, Thomas indicates that the Latin Vulgate, and this is correct because the Vulgate has peccatum, the singular word for sin. And the Greek text agrees with the Latin in this case, having the singular hamartian here in the Greek text. Hamartian, hard breathing, a M-A-R-T-I-A-N. That's the basis for the theology of sin called hamartiology. That's why we call it that. But again, the Latin has peccatum, P-E-C-C-A-T-U-M, which is the singular word for sin. He took away the sin, singular, of the world, the cosmos, the universe. And the Latin Vulgate in this case agrees with the Greek text, which is hamartia. And the idea is that not only sins, plural, were expiated or taken away, but that sin itself, capitalize it in this case, sin, the very sin that infects and infests the cosmos and the mass of humanity was taken away. You see, this is what I mean when I say that the situation of humanity was radically altered in the cross. The situation of the universe was radically altered in the cross because sin was taken out of it. The condition of the world is still in slavery to corruption. The condition of humanity is still in slavery to corruption. And no matter how much we want to say we're free, we're not free because we're under the control of sin in some measure and in sometimes great measure in our lives. Our condition hasn't changed, but our situation has changed. Thank God. Faith lays hold of that, and hope lays hold of the future change of our condition. We dealt with that in the last message, and I think they're going to deal with that subject a lot in the future. So the idea is not only sins were expiated or taken away, but that sin itself, the very sin that infects and infests the cosmos and the mass of humanity was taken away. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it doesn't say that Christ was made sins, made to be sins, but sin, hamartian, again, singular, so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Moreover, once again, in what I consider more and more to be the key verse of all of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.26, even though the Latin Vulgate says that Christ put away sins, peccati, P-E-C-C-A-T-I, plural, the Greek text, both the Nestle Allen 27th edition and the Byzantine text of Greek have the singular hamartian again in Hebrews 9.26. In these cases, the Greek texts are to be preferred over the Latin as in most other cases. If, if you were going to give me a Greek text in the Latin Vulgate and said, which one were you going to take? Because you've got to throw away the other one. I take the Greek text every single time. Sixth observation. The Lamb of God as a title for Jesus Christ in itself shows the universality of the impact of his saving death. Because the action of this lamb or the action of God in and by this lamb is the taking away or the expiation of the sin of the entire cosmos or universe. It is extraordinary, therefore, how this verse in John 129 has not been seen or acknowledged as being indicative of John's universalism. Because it is. And that universalism of John is replete throughout John's gospel. 
And I think someday I'm going to do a brief redoing of John's gospel, having done it once before in 300 messages. I think I want to take time, if I have time, if the Lord permits, I may deal with John again in a more compact way to show his universalism, which I didn't really show in the first time through years ago. But John's universalism is replete throughout John's gospel and John's apocalypse, which we showed fairly clearly in our study of the book of Revelation, which we called Rev the Book, where hopefully we revved the book a little bit. And in the book of Revelation, of course, significantly the word lamb is used 28 times, four times, seven times, and we've dealt with why that many times and how it deals with the universal witness of the Holy Spirit who takes the witness of the lamb and brings it into all the earth. The seventh observation, this archpriest is just the kind of archpriest we all need because unlike the archpriests of the former order, this forever archpriest is also the sacrifice once and for all and forever offered. That seventh observation is more of a comprehensive one and maybe repeats what I've said in the previous ones. So in closing, I want to make a little connection here to 1 Peter. There are many connections, as we've said before, between 1 Peter and Hebrews, not the least of which is the word we're going to be coming up to next in our next increment, describing our archpriest, Amiantos, which is used in 1 Peter 1.4. But in connection with what we're talking about now, commenting on 1 Peter 1.20, Maximus the Confessor of the 7th century writes this, quote, Christ was foreknown, not as what he was in himself by nature, but as what he manifested when, in the economy of salvation, he subsequently became human on our behalf. For truly, he who is creator of the, the creator of the essence of created beings by nature had also to become the very author of the deification of creatures by grace in order that the giver of well-being, and that he uses the Greek phrase there, which I think is, I find fascinating, that the author of well-being the Greek phrase to, eni, or eni, to, you, eni, would become the gracious giver of eternal well-being. And that is, we'll just do the transliteration here because that's what he does. To, A-E-I, E-U, E-I-N-A-I. That's what the author of this book on Maximus did. To, and then the word A-E-I, and then separate word E-U, which means good, and then A-N-I. So I'll quote that again. I'm going to give the full quote again. Commenting on 1 Peter 1.20, Maximus the Confessor writes this. Christ was foreknown, not as what he was in himself by nature, but as what he manifested when, in the economy of salvation, he subsequently became human on our behalf. For truly, he who is the creator of the essence of created beings by nature had also to become the very author of the deification of creatures by grace in order that the giver of well-being might appear also as the gracious giver of eternal well-being. In our change of condition, we're going to have that eternal well-being. Even now, before our change of condition, before we're changed according to the mystery and to incorruptibility, we have the gift of well-being. Not all our lives and not every day and every moment. But if you look over your life, and as I do, I, th I think of my life as having the gift of well-being most of the time even in tests, even in trials, even in suffering. But the author of our well-being is also the gracious giver of eternal well-being. Hebrews calls him the author of eternal salvation, the one who secured eternal redemption. 
Slightly later, Maximus added this phrase, and I think it fits splendidly into Hebrews 7.26. The scriptural word, capital W-R-D, O-R-D, calls Christ pure and spotless, since in soul and body he was by nature absolutely free from the corruption of sin. For his soul did not bear the disgrace of evil, nor his body the blemish of sin. So we're talking here about Christ Akakos, without evil. We're talking about also without blemish, which is the outer blemish of the lamb in the ritual offerings, but he was also without any kind of sin, mental sin, emotional sin, inward or outer sin. So, so far, exegesis of Hebrews 7.26, our translation of that verse reads like this. This is the kind of archpriest we need, one who is holy and without evil. And next we'll consider the other adjective. But our archpriest is not only ritually pure, in other words, he is really pure, truly holy and utterly without the impure motives that plague sinful men. And it was sinful men who became priests under the Levitical order, as we will see. And Father, we thank you for this priest that you've given us. A priest forever. A priest who is also a lamb. For our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom you entrusted all judgment, became judged for us in our place. And he who you made great archpriest by an oath was also the offering offered by that priest in our behalf. There's so much to be thankful for, Father, on this Mother's Day and so much to be thankful for to you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.